Good morning, church. Well, we're back in John chapter 6, and we're going to be covering a lot of verses. Um, today, I'm going to finish out the chapter, so we're going to start in verse uh, 41 of John 6, and I'll read 30 verses through the, uh, the end of the chapter, verse 71. And I hope that you will follow along in your own Bibles, uh, so you know where this story is at, and you can find it again in the Bibles that you read every day. So verse 41 of John 6 says, The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me draws him, Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate, ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he, feeds on me. Say, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But they are, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe that and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we believe you when you say that the flesh profits nothing, but the Spirit gives life, and we, we are wholly dependent now on your Spirit for enlightening the eyes of our understanding, for for uh, getting to know um, what what it is you have to say to us in your word. Um, you have to open that up to us. You have to illuminate 
uh, the text in front of us and, and uh, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we could see. And we, we pray, God, that, that our hearts would be in the condition um, we, we, where we find Peter at the end saying, we have nowhere else to go because you have the words of eternal life. Give us the, the proper appetite for those words. Give us the appetite for the bread of life. And let us look forward to the resurrection that you promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, back in verse 35, Jesus had said, I am the bread of life. And now we've read, him, we, we've read this passage and seen that he, he says this twice more. Um, in verse 48, he says it again, and then again he'll say he is the living bread of life. The chapter began with a story about bread. Jesus miraculously provided bread for 5,000 families. That caused a stir. The, the people tried to make him king by force, and Jesus would have none of it. And so he took a walk uh, across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. But they found him again, and in verse 59, it says he's at the synagogue. So this is a, a sort of public, even formal gathering. Um, you know, there, there's teaching. It's, it's, they're, they're going to church. The other Gospels tell us that there are people up from Jerusalem inspecting him, trying to trap him, as they usually do, trying to find fault. And the people talking to him now are saying, Do a sign. Give us bread. And Jesus has told them, I am the bread. The signs won't help you believe. And twice in this passage, three times actually, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says it a little bit differently the third time. Now, anything worth in anything repeated is worth listening to at least twice as long. And Jesus says, I'm the bread, two times, and then, then a third time a little different, and I'm happy that he does. Um, I love bread. I'm glad to see that Jesus says that he's bread. Uh, I've got three grapevines at home, at my house right now, that are just going wild, too. They're not ripe or anything, but they just, they're really pretty. And, and I'm really enjoying them. So I'm glad Jesus says that he's the vine, too, in John chapter 15. Now, we're, we're several chapters away before we get to uh, the last I am statement of Jesus. I am the vine in John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. Um, and, you know, I am the bread of life. That's the first. And then I am the, the vine is the last one. But these, these bookend statements of the person and ministry of Jesus really provide us with the same kind of message. The message to the people is, is basically the same. It's that Jesus is the source of all spiritual life. He is this as the vine and the branches must exist in him in order to live. And he is, he is the source of all spiritual life in that he is bread and he is necessary for our survival. When Jesus will say, I'm the vine and you are the branches, he makes the point very clear, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The same point is being made about the bread. Last week I said something to the effect that bread is, is both for enjoyment and survival. We eat to live, but also we eat because it's great. Uh, we eat for fun. And, but when I say that I love bread, I'm probably saying something that would have sounded pretty stupid to most of the people in first century Israel. The enjoyment factor of bread was probably very low comparatively for these people. If you go to the store now, how many different kinds of bread can you get? How many different kinds of bread can you choose from? Not even from a bakery, just like a bread aisle at a grocery store. There's dozens of different kinds of bread. And it, it's become an accessory, an enjoyable one. Uh, but it, it's not necessary by any means. For these people, it was life. The staff of life. The bread of life. Um, and I remember talking to... Uh, Aaron Garcia, one of our missionaries, and he, he remembers having the conversation with a brother in Christ in Nepal. 
And in Nepal, you know, they eat two meals a day, and it's the same thing for breakfast as it is for lunch. It's rice and lentils, uh, dalbat. And um, if it's your birthday, and then you want something special, then you might add chicken to the rice and lentils that you're already having. But anyway, Aaron was talking to a brother there, and, and this guy said, well, Aaron, you, meaning, you know, you Americans, you Westerners, says, you eat to enjoy, we eat to live. Now, obviously, the variety of foods that God has given us show that the, they are there to enjoy. Um, we are to enjoy what we eat. There is enjoyment to be found there. But since we live in a wealthy country with mega giant supermarkets, we can lose sight of the fact that food is for survival and not just entertainment. Guys, you know that I think it's valuable and important thing for every Christian who is able to go on mission trips, to go, um, to, to go experience what it's like to share the gospel in a different cultural context and, and see the church, how the church functions, you know, across borders that, that you haven't crossed before. Um, it's part of the Great Commission, and, and while it's true that we need to be preaching the gospel in our own neighborhoods, there's something about crossing borders, whether literal or figurative, that is tremendously Christ-like and tremendously effective. It has a humbling effect on the one who goes. And, and one of the places that we've been as a church several times um, is Mexico. And I love Mexico. Now, Ensenada is not... It doesn't really behave like a third world country in most ways. It, it's not, you know, they have tacos. The food is wonderful. Uh, and there's there's real roads and running water. And when we take teams there, I just call it San Diego South, okay? But it it is different. And you don't know how different it is until you've come back to the U.S. And when we come back, there's a there's a Vons off the 805 that we stop at and and use the restroom after waiting in line at the border for, you know, a couple hours and stock up for with snacks to drive home and everything. And and when you walk into this grocery store, it's a big grocery store, and you see all the food, and and, and every time I go in there, I want to cry. And because the abundance is suddenly overwhelming. And, and it wears off quickly, of course. But it goes to show that our attitude towards food is influenced by our culture and our affluence. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we have to take the cultural context into consideration and try and forget about the fully stocked grocery store bread aisle. I love bread, and Jesus is enjoyable, but he is necessary for survival, not just entertainment. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying that he is necessary for your survival. If you are going to live, then you will do so by consuming him. Now, if that sounds strange, then good. That's kind of the point he's making, and it's in line with the rest of this passage. This passage says, um, you know, if we take the route of saying Jesus is like bread, he's enjoyable, he makes you happy, he's warm, you know, we're missing the point, and we're missing the metaphor. Jesus is like bread because we eat him. Now, look at verse 53. In verse 53, and then we'll go back to 41 again, but verse 53 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
The point is clear. Jesus says, I'm like bread, not because I'm good with butter, but because by consuming me, by tearing me and crushing me and destroying me and internalizing me, you will have life. And Jesus says in John chapter 12, later on, John 12, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Li living wheat is resurrected from dead grain, symbolically dead grain. It's buried grain. It's dried and it's buried. Bread is made from dried grain, dead grain. Even if you sprout your wheat, and I know that all you organic sprouted wheat Sprouted bread hippie types are thinking about that. The oven still kills the wheat. It's not, it's not alive anymore. When you eat meat, the cow died. When you eat lettuce, you cut it off from the roots. We are sustained physically by the death of other living things. In most cases, not all, in most cases, something died to give you your food. Jesus is saying, I am the food that dies so that you can live. Now go back to verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, six times in this conversation has Jesus said that he has come down from heaven. If you go through this chapter and count, it's six times. He has claimed heavenly origins. His point is very clear, and it's left a mark. So his accusers are complaining about this. Now remember in chapter 5, in John 5, when Jesus defended his reputation, we, we talked about the importance of reputation, uh, but also uh, we talked about that how people, you know, the, what people say about you is much less important than what God says about you. And here we see that Jesus had an accurate uh understanding of his own reputation, but he had an inaccurate reputation being spread by other people. While Jesus says, I am from heaven, they just say, well, he's from Joseph. This is Joseph's boy. And they discard any of Jesus' claims on the grounds that they know his family. They don't pay attention to Jesus because they think they know his dad. So Jesus once again talks about his heavenly father in verse 43. He says, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This should remind you of John chapter 1 right now. Uh, but first, he says, do not murmur. Don't murmur. Now, only twice in the New Testament is this word murmur used. Both times in John. Now, remember, the story at large in chapter 6 is a parallel to the story of the manna in the wilderness. After Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and in that story, you'll read about murmuring a whole lot. The people are saved by uh, God through a, a strong leader who leads them from slavery to freedom. And the two characteristics of the nation during that time are complaining and lack of faith. Those are their defining core virtues. They're not really virtues. They're characteristics. Now, do you see any parallels here to the people that, with the people that Jesus is dealing with? Jesus has already said, this is just like the manna. The manna, the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. And then they complain. They murmur. And that, that word murmur is used to describe the nation of Israel in their 40 years of, of wilderness wanderings. And he says, don't murmur like you're doing it again. 
don't murmur, don't complain, don't do this. Now, the, the Jews had a sort of idealistic love for their past. It was very inaccurate. They clung to the idea of the good old days. They believed themselves to be God's chosen people based entirely on their race, their birth, and ironically, their merits. Ironic, since being born into one nation or another has nothing to do with merit. But you see the, the sort of rose-colored glasses they wear when they look at the past. Like when, when Jesus says that they are slaves to sin, then they say, we've never been slaves of anybody. We'll worry about the, that later in John. That's what the, they actually answer Jesus that. We've never been enslaved. That's patently false. Uh, as they were saying this, they were subjects of Rome. Rome had appointed both their political and religious leaders, their high priests and a king, Herod. They were puppet, puppets placed there uh, in office by Rome. They'd been deprived of their rights to follow their own laws, and they had a hefty tax. So when Jesus says, if anyone compels you to go with one mile, go with them too, he's talking about a situation that they might routinely find themselves in, being compelled, forced to be enslaved to bear someone else's burden for a mile. But even without the current setting, Israel was defined by the Exodus, which was a freedom from slavery. But they chose to conveniently forget or deny that part of history. They idealized the past. They brushed past any of the embarrassing parts, like when they were murmuring in the wilderness after God saved them from Egypt. But Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in 45, it says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he's showing them that there is more to intimacy with God than being part of their club the Israel Club. Specifically, he reiterates the point he's made earlier. You cannot follow the Father and not follow the Son, nor can you do the reverse. But also, if you do gain access to the Father, you have no one to thank but the Son. And if you do get to the Son, it's only because the Father draws you. Christians, this, this is maybe a little bit confusing, but it is something that we believe. And this is not just a fringe doctrine that only die-hard five-point Calvinists hold on to or something. This is Christianity. We believe that it was God's idea to save us, not our idea to get saved. We do not come to Jesus through an act of will. I'm not saying that people don't have free will. That's another conversation for another time. But I'm saying that your will cannot redeem you. And no one has ever been saved just because they wanted to just because they decided to. John has already said this in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, do the, do the mechanics of this make any sense to us? Uh, not usually, uh, but we believe it. And most of us have experienced it, experienced it as a part of our testimony. If it were up to us, we wouldn't be saved. In the retelling of your conversion, there's a moment when God reached out to you and caused you to be born again. And of course, anecdotally, there are many testimonies that don't sound like that when you hear them. People do tell their stories differently, and sometimes it seems like it's the person reaching out to God, making the first step. But Jesus says that's not ultimately the way it works. God always takes the first step. He's always the one that takes the first step towards you. He's always, he always says the first word. He always initiates. He's always the one reaching out. And I've, I've shared this comparison before, but in considering our relationship with the Lord, I still believe it to be one of the best ways of looking at it. 
uh, at, it's com by comparing it to the relationship of an infant to an adult. You know, I, I think I've shared it before when I've talked about prayer, but it's true of salvation as well. Parents notice the first words of their children. First words are important. But the fact is, the first words, the first word of the baby only comes after literal millions of words that have been spoken to them and around them and in their hearing since before they were born. The first word of a baby is never the first word. It's just their first verbal response, maybe. A, a person's first words to God are never the first words in that conversation. He has been speaking to each one millions of silent words since before they were born. The choice to come to Jesus is never the first choice. God made choices before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In verse 45, he says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This, this verse Jesus quotes is from Isaiah 54, verse 13. And this may have been the passage that he taught from that day in, uh, in the synagogue. And we've been seeing that Jesus has been referencing Isaiah 55 a few times, and he's going to do it again in chapter 7, and he's going to do it again in chapter 8. Um, but here he quotes from Isaiah 54, and you've got to remember that there were no chapter divisions then, so this fits very well with a theme that John is tying in and continuing in, is, is that Christ is fulfilling and living out this portion of Isaiah. It's a beautiful passage that, that's really all about the kingdom of God and heaven, and in, in most of the prophetic passages that talk about heaven, it mentions God being able to teach the people directly and the people learning from God directly. Now, in your Bible, Isaiah 54, 13 reads a little differently than the way Jesus says it here. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, the chapter as a whole looks like it's towards the capital K kingdom, but as with most prophecies, there are near fulfillments and far fulfillments. Some prophecies talk about Jesus' first coming in the first part, and Jesus' second coming in the second part. And it's true that when you read Isaiah 54, you'll, you'll think that it's talking about a heaven that hasn't happened yet, but parts of it have. And when Isaiah says, your children shall be taught by God, there's a partial fulfillment right here in John. Jesus, God's Son, God of very God, God made flesh, is teaching the people who have been drawn to him by his Father. He's teaching the children of those who had received the original prophecies from Isaiah. He's fulfilling that right now. And Jesus had said that you can't come to Christ unless the Father draws you. And I, I mentioned how the Father has drawn and called and chosen since long before any of us had a will uh, that, we, that we could use to will ourselves into that relationship. But now Jesus says that whoever learns from the Father, that learns from the Father's call, is un, uh, understands that that call is to his Son. Verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then we have it here again in verse 48, I am the bread of life. And when he says no one has seen the Father except he who is from God, he's talking about himself. That's Jesus. So again, Jesus is coming out strong with the claims to deity. Again, he says his source is from heaven, that he is from heaven. He is absolutely emphatic about his own divinity, he is crystal clear about his heavenly origins, uh, about who he is. Jesus is God. That's why they wanted to kill him, after all. 
And Jesus making these claims, repeating these claims, truth that he is hammering home, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then for the second time, by way of explanation, perhaps he says, I am the bread of life. He's saying things that he said before. Um, and now some of Jesus' words, especially in John's gospel, can feel to the, the Western American reader a little bit rambling. Uh, it's not as easy to follow as some of the other parts of the Bible. So you, you have to look carefully and find clues wherever you can to find out well why Jesus is saying what he says when he says it. And, and we have some of those clues. In verse 10, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. If you go back to chapter 5, you read, of, you read Jesus saying, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And he says it in this chapter, uh, or so, sorry, he says it in the same chapter, I say these things that you may be saved. Now in chapter 4, if you go back there, we, we hear Jesus say to the woman at the well, Believe me. And in chapter 3, we have the conversation with Nicodemus and the famous words, whoever believes him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we know from John's words in John, um, you know, the, the last chapter of John where he says, these are written that you may believe. The conversation about the bread of life is there in order for people to see Jesus as the perfect object of faith. This passage is here, along with all the rest of those passages, to lead you in faith. And the metaphor of bread helps us understand this mystery that is faith. Believing is not unlike sinking your teeth into something for enjoyment, but ultimately for survival. You can't eat something and not be totally committed to it. And as Jesus gives his body to us in the form of bread, he is completely aware of the process of breaking down nutrients for the purpose of giving energy. Eating is for life. You are what you eat. That may be a little simplistic, but it's true. Jesus says, take me in as your bread. Digest me so that you can become like me. Your life will be the result of me in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what Paul writes. Jesus is saying that the life that comes from taking him in is perfect and everlasting and good and capable of more than any other bread that the people had had. But he, he's telling them also it's possible to sit down at this table and to not be committed to the meal and not receive its benefits. And that's the second part of this chapter, really. All the way to the end, it shows us that it is possible to encounter the bread and not be committed to the meal. People leave. Disciples stop following him. And it even mentions Judas at the end, his, his first mention in John. It's a sort of foreshadowing of the betrayal to come. He was one who encountered bread. He encountered the man from heaven, and he still didn't believe. In verse 49, Jesus says, Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now once again, Jesus says, You are living in the wilderness, period. Your history has led you here. There was bread from heaven then. There's bread from heaven now. If you're missing the parallels, I don't know how I can be any clearer. And then at the end of this conversation, in verse 52, it says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, which is exactly what they did when they were in the wilderness under Moses. 
They've proven Jesus's point. They're doing it again. But in all the similarities between this event and the time uh, with the manna in the wilderness, Jesus is just as focused at showing how the two events are not alike. Every metaphor breaks down somewhere. You know, symbols are symbols because they represent things that they aren't. And it should be obvious that there are similarities, of course. Starting at the beginning of chapter 6, we have the whole crowd of people leave their homes, go into the wilderness. God spoke to them from a mountain, miraculously fed them with bread from heaven. You know, this reads right out of Exodus. Uh, but the differences are just as, as just important as the similarities. The difference here is the nature of the bread. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. Remember how we talked about how the Jews looked back at their beautiful spotless past, perfect only in memory. Jesus is, is rooting them in reality. Manna was great. It provided life, but only for a little while. And then everyone that ate it died. They should remind you of the woman at the well again. Jesus says, I have some water for you. If you take it, you'll never thirst again. Same thing here. He says, the old bread only satisfies for a while, for a lifetime, a short lifetime. But I'm offering bread that will satisfy far beyond this life. I provide bread that gives eternal life. I am that bread. Now look at the next passage here. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, in the first four verses of this passage I just read, verses uh, 54 through 56, Jesus says the word flesh four times in four verses. Uh, and it, it's gross. It's supposed to be gross. This the word flesh was offensive to the hearers. Um, it, it's, uh, the, the Greek word even sounds kind of gross. It's sarx, like S-A-R-X, sarx. Um, it's, it's a scandalous word. It's, it's disgusting. And, and when they hear about it, they leave. Verse 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They said, Nope, I don't want that Bible story. I, I don't want the gory parts. I don't like that Jesus says I have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they leave. Uh, and kind of for the same reason as people who have maybe, you know, worked in a meat processing facility, become vegetarians. You know, once they see what really has to happen in order for them to get their food, on the table, they, they kindly opt out and look for nourishment elsewhere. But Jesus doesn't cover your eyes. He doesn't miss wor mince words. He, he doesn't soften things up or sugarcoat anything. He shows us the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side and says, put your hand in here. The Gospels lead every reader to the cross. The writers of the Gospel accounts lead us to crucifixion. And we hear Pontius Pilate say, behold the man. And we behold him. And for the next 2,000 years plus, we, with the Apostle Paul, determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Knowing that this is a disgusting story that people want to separate themselves from. But when Pontius Pilate said, Behold the man, there were people who looked and saw something to be rejected. And then there were a few who saw something to be received. 
With the eyes of faith, we behold the bread of life and say, this is where I receive my nourishment. Now, I know we didn't really go through the last um, section verse by verse. We just read it at the beginning, and we'll pick it up more of it next week. Um, but I want to show you more of the division that Jesus has made in this portion of Scripture. In verse 66, there are those who went away, and Jesus asks, asks of the twelve in verse 67, Do you also want to go away? And then we read, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this has to be what we're left with. The vision of Jesus Christ as bread is the vision of Jesus Christ as that which is destroyed and crushed and crucified so that we can have nourishment. And, and the vision of a crucified Lord and the words of Peter in our mouth, this must be what we're left with. Where else could we go? To whom shall we go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Now in this chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter, uh, they, they emphasize the divisive nature of Christ. Are you going to eat at this table or not? Um, in this chapter, he says some things, and, and some people leave, and some people stay. And in the next chapter, there's going to be more people that decide to leave and people that decide to stay. And when presented with the crucified Christ, we are faced with a, an obligation to make a decision. We're required to do something with that Christ. To make a decision. And, and Peter makes the right decision. And it's what we should be left with. Um, where we can say, where else could we go? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. We'll just close there. Let's pray. Jesus, again we confess that the flesh profits nothing, but the spirit gives life. And we ask God that you would uh, give us spiritual understanding of these things as we consider them. As we, um, as we chew on these truths, as we meditate on these things, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on Christ and nowhere else. We don't want to go anywhere else. We want to stay with you where you are. In Jesus' name, amen.